With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 9, which sounds a little bit different than what we've been doing for the past three years, and we're going to explain all of that in our housekeeping section before we get into all the questions. And we're joined today by Liz Rose, so let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we get started with all of the questions and comments regarding this week's episode, just as a quick housekeeping thing, some of you may have noticed that in the episode, whether you're in iTunes or Stitcher or Podbeam or wherever you're listening to our episodes, that they no longer say episode 609. And I just wanted to give you guys a quick explainer as to why we've done that. One thing that's really been tricky for our show with new people that come in is they get overwhelmed because they see the first episode is number 609. They don't know where to start unless they've gone all the way back to the beginning where they would have heard the explainer about how the episode numbering works and all of that. We get lots of emails and comments and messages about that all the time. So what's happened is with the most recent Apple update, iTunes has finally set up the podcast app to where if you go into the available episodes for any show, it will list season numbers and episode numbers so you know where to start. So that's why we've never done it before is because even if we did it on Audio Boom. It wouldn't show up that way in iTunes, and no one would know where anybody's at. So now that that's done, we're going to be, from this point forward, labeling all of our episodes, Season 6, Episode 9, and then the follow-ups will be follow-up to Season 6, Episode 9. The episodes will still drop just like normal for you guys. It'll just be a little bit different that we won't be having that 100 numbering system that we have had in the past. And as we get time, Mike's going to be going back through our old back catalog and starting to update the old seasons for that. And the other thing that it'll do for you is say you want to listen to Ed's story or, you know, like we just had when he, when he was released and then the, you know, that episode that you know, we, we marked as episode 257. But if someone later is listening to season two and they get to the end of it, they won't know that a year and a half, two years later, there's another episode about his case. But with this new episode numbering, if they go into iTunes or wherever they listen to their podcast and they go to season two, that episode will be included in the season two episodes as episode number 57. So hopefully that'll make things run a little smoother for those of you who have been around for a long time, which is uh, probably the overwhelming majority of you. It's a little bit different, but every Sunday and Friday morning, the episodes are still going to drop just like normal. They'll just have a little different numbering system. Other than that, thank you, Liz, for joining us today. I know we've got several questions for you specifically, and I also know that it is very, very early in the morning out in California because you apparently don't sleep. Very rarely. All right, let's go ahead and get started so Liz can get her nap in. Jen says, Sandra refused medical care the night of the murder. Since Sandra has medical issues and was trapped and tied up in a closet, why did she refuse to get checked? 
So I can give you my perspective on that. And then Liz probably has the actual answer to it. My opinion is she just went through something very traumatic. So let's say Sandy's innocent. She had nothing to do with this. Aside from the fact that she was in pain and she was tied up and this happened to her, what's going to trump all of that? If what she's saying is true and she was in a loving marriage, which I believe that, I believe that that she is telling the truth, that's my opinion, that she was in a loving marriage and she had a great relationship with her husband and she just found out that her husband of 32 years was murdered. In my opinion, that's going to trump anything else. I don't, most people in that scenario would be thinking about themselves unless they're mortally wounded. You know, they're, they're not worried about that their shoulder hurts or their head hurts or their back or their legs or whatever. They just, they're just kind of in shock. And they're going to be focused on what had just happened to their husband. Now, Liz, you actually probably know the answer to this as you've had many conversations with your mom. Do you want to chime in? Yeah, I think um, I don't think it's strange for somebody. You know, I used to work on the ambulance and this happened all the time, especially people who were, you know, like you said, traumatic accidents. They didn't even notice that they were injured, whether they were like bleeding profusely or they were just in complete shock. And for my mom, I think it was just, she was spending the evening with her husband of 32 years. They had had a romantic evening together. She gets out of the tub. The next thing she remembers, you know, she's she's in a closet. She's bound and being set free by my family. And, you know, her husband has been murdered in a closet. And that's really shocking, but disorientating and confusing. So... So in a seizure and possible concussion on top of that. And yeah, so I just imagine that, you know, waking up, finding everything has been turned upside down. It's just incredibly traumatic. And all she wants to do is get to the bottom of things, figure out what's happened. And she's, you know, her her injuries or her discomfort or the absolute last things on her mind. Can we jump back to what you just said, Liz, about a possible concussion? That's come up a lot in a lot of the discussion boards. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know that we heard in the interrogation she kept say, mentioning that her head hurt, and I've heard that quite a bit. Why do you think that she possibly had a concussion? So I've been going back over a lot of the files that I have, and uh, one of those documents is the motion for new trial. And in there, they reference some testimony from the expert witness, which was also her neurologist, and uh, it was his opinion that she had sustained a concussion. So there there was a documented, I think it was a hematoma, wasn't it? A couple of days after the murder, she finally did go to the doctor, and wasn't she it discovered that she did have a hematoma on her on her head? Yeah, so I, uh, I felt the lump on her head as soon as I got into the car from when I arrived from the airport. She was in the car with uh, the people that were picking me up. So two days after that, because I arrived on Christmas, I made sure that her friend took her to the doctor to have you know everything looked at. So her doctor was able to document you know the injuries that she didn't have looked at by uh, the hospital. Okay, next she has a point. She says because Sandra refused medical care, there's no actual proof of seizure activity or other medical issues. Since it's assumed that she had a seizure yet no proof of one, this to me is a big red flag. What's your take, Bob? Well, the thing is, there's, and Liz can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's still no way to prove there was a seizure. And that's why this, we focus in on what, in our investigations, on what we do know and what we can prove. And that's why really the medical issues haven't been a big focus for me. What we do know is that Sandy, in fact, has lupus. She, in fact, has epilepsy. She, in fact, has bilateral hip replacement. She's broken her shoulder. These are all things that we know about her. She has arthritis. You can see the photos that we put on the website of her hands, her knuckles, and things. That they have the obvious telltale signs of pretty severe arthritis. Uh, these are things that we know. But regarding the the epilepsy and the lupus and, and the possibility of seizures, this is what I know to be true. She has been diagnosed with these things, and it is possible for her to have a seizure. If she hadn't had a seizure in a day, a week, a month, or 10 years, it's still possible for her to have seizures. I also know that if someone has a seizure, there are oftentimes memory issues that come along with that. And they rain, and that also goes along with, with the lupus fog as well. And as we just talked about concussions, uh, and it's not only from the point of the seizure forward, there's retrograde amnesia where people will oftentimes, and this is well, well documented. Anyone can go look this up. It happens. 
when a seizure, say a seizure occurs at five o'clock, a normal day, five o'clock, bam, a seizure happens. They go through their postictal state. They come out of it. Oftentimes, the memory loss isn't only starting at five o'clock. Sometimes it's starting at two o'clock, three o'clock, or the day before. There's something that happens physiologically in the brain as a result of a seizure. That all that being said, there's, in, as far as I know, there's no way to go into a doctor 15 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours later and prove that there was, in fact, a seizure. So it, it's, it's kind of moot. What we have, we know is it is possible that she had a seizure and there's no way to prove or disprove whether or not she had one. And Liz, you having lupus yourself and having lived with your mother with epilepsy and stuff over the years, am I wrong about that? Is there a way that they can go to a doctor and they can prove one way or another whether someone had a seizure or not? No, they, uh, there are times where they can't even prove it while the seizure is having when they're hooked up to the EEG. It doesn't mean that they're not having a seizure or that they don't have epilepsy. Yeah, there's just no way to definitively prove one way or another that they have had one. Right. And so my point with all that is there are several things in this case that, that go right along the same vein in the fact that it's possible that it did happen. It's possible that it didn't happen and there's no way to prove it. And that's the same issue with, uh, with the bindings. A couple of weeks ago, we were doing a lot of experimenting. I had made a couple of videos and, uh, listener Sam had made a couple of videos too. He was trying to show that it is possible to restrain yourself with the types of knots and, and material that were found on the scene. And I think that he effectively proved that it is possible, at least for someone who's, you know, doesn't have issues. I think he had said that he had some shoulder issues, but someone in his particular physical condition is able to do that. And so because of that, we can't rule out that it's, we can't say that it's impossible for it to happen. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I, I did some demonstrations for the other way, showing how someone could tie someone else up in those ways. So with, with the, the bindings, it's the same story. Can we say it's impossible for someone to do it to themselves, to bind their arms in a parallel fashion behind their back like that? We can't say it's impossible. I mean, Sam, Sam proved that it is possible. But can we say that it's not possible for someone else to tie you up like that? Can't say that either. So it's, it's, it's along those same lines as, uh, this, this deal with the epilepsy and the seizures, which just no way to prove it one way or the other. And then her last point, is there any actual proof of intruders being present in the home that night? I don't see proof of this, only speculation. I, well, I mean, the dead body in the house is, in my opinion, is, is a pretty good indicator that there was an intruder. Right. Uh, I mean, that's, and, and I don't mean to be sarcastic with that, but that's the thing is there's also no evidence that Sandy committed this murder. What we have is someone who was absolutely 100%, no question about it, murdered in the home. We know that Sandy was bound up in a closet. Maybe she did it to herself. I don't think so, but that's a possibility. So those are indicators that there was an intruder. They could also be indicators that it was staged to look like an intruder, but there was a murder that occurred. And, you know, as we've gone through the crime scene, the three episodes covering the crime scene, there are a lot of items that very much look like they were picked through and taken and, and we're not going to get into it in this episode because uh, we're going to do a full main episode with Liz coming up very soon to talk about uh, the house and what was actually missing and what was documented to be missing. But in a nutshell, there were absolutely things that were gone from the house that should have been there. Uh, the biggest issue we have is how did they get in? You know, we have, we've got the back door that's locked, so he couldn't have gotten in there or could they have, could they have locked the door behind them after they came in? There's no way for us to know that, just like the other things we were talking about. The garage door. Someone on the fan page just last night made a, a really good point about the garage door that I had never thought of. They said this exact scenario had happened to them. That's what made them think about it. When they were coming into their house, they had bags with groceries in their hands, and they reached up to hit the button to close the garage door. And when they did it, they accidentally hit both buttons, the right and the left garage door. So at the same time as their usual door was coming down, the other door was going up, and of course they didn't hear it because it was happening at the same time, and their neighbor had come over and let them know, hey, your garage door is wide open. That's a possibility. There's a million possibilities, but um, certainly I think that a murder victim in the home is an indicator that there's an intruder. Is it proof that there was an intruder? No, that's what we're trying to figure out, but it's certainly an indicator. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This next one comes from Nina. I don't know if it's been mentioned yet, but did anyone notice that Sandy refers to her husband in the present tense during the interview? Psychologically, this tells me that she hasn't even mentally processed his death, let alone perpetrated it. A comment that I made on the fan page in a discussion was, because a lot of people have different, there are a lot of people looking at this interview and trying to analyze it from an objective standpoint. There are people that are listening to the interview who believe Sandy is innocent and are listening for signs of innocence. And then there are people who believe she's guilty and are only listening for signs of guilt. And, you know, whether they can argue that they don't have that bias one way or another is very clear in their in their comments and their posts, if you, you you know, you can search somebody's name and see that every single post they ever make is talking about indicators of innocence and nothing acknowledging anything that, that goes towards guilt. And the same thing is, is true the other way. But what I point out for me, I'm literally checking boxes when I do a statement analysis. And that's one of the boxes, uh, that, that she mentions here is, and this is uh, what, what Jim Fitzgerald would call forensic linguistics, which I'm certainly no expert in, but I, you know, I'm trying to learn every day how to do these things. And I'm listening to the word choices that are used. And is she carefully choosing them or is she just free-flowing speaking? And she does. Every single time throughout the interview, she refers to Jim in the present tense. He is this. He is doing this. He does this. She never refers to him in the past tense. And that's, you know, it's not as week of of analysis as you know reading tea leaves but it's it's not you know it's not a huge leap above that it's not proof uh, and it's something someone who is very very sharp can fake but it's hard to fake it in the way that she did uh, but yeah the indicator there is typically that they haven't processed this yet they still think of sandy still thinks of her husband as being alive and it's an indicator that she was not the perpetrator of the crime uh, because oftentimes what we see and this is something just as a as a side note, as a plug on Oxygen, there's a great show that my wife Becky and I have started watching lately. It's on demand. I think a new season comes out on the 13th. It's called Criminal Confessions. Really well done show, and it, it's kind of fascinating. But they go through the process of interrogations on certain cases and how they, they get a confession from these people. Most of the time, it's done in a, in a good way. But it's a great teaching learning experience to watch the suspects as they're being interviewed to look for indicators like this. And, and you'll see... How oftentimes, you know, they'll, or especially even in cases when someone is just missing and they're not dead and they start referring to them in the past tense, you know, well, she was this or she was that. Well, what do you mean was? As far as we know, she's still alive. Why are you doing that? So, yeah, I think that's one of the boxes to check. And it and it's certainly typically an indicator uh, that they're telling the truth and, and they didn't commit the crime because if she had killed him herself and had spent 15 hours staging the scene and and manipulating the body with the ropes and all that which you know again in my opinion is pretty ridiculous at this point now that we see we're getting a fuller picture of what happened uh and what the scene actually looked like but certainly that's a lot of time to process what had just happened all right nigel says i want to know how the bruise on sandra's arm went from a bruise to a heinous injury i assume she's talking about here the the way the cop was kind of expanding on that yeah during the interrogation yeah I mean, it it didn't. She, you know, he kept talking about the the wrap around bruise. I mean, and Liz, what did you take of that? To me, it sounded like, and because there's people had different takes on it, it, it sounded to me as though he was trying to indicate uh, or trying to suggest that your mom and dad had had a fight and that your dad had been abusive towards your mom. That there was something that that triggered her to to kill him. I mean, it, what what did you take about that that part of the interrogation, the tactics used by Corazal at that point? For me, it just seemed like he was suggesting that this was an injury that she had sustained, you know, carrying out the murder. Because at this point, all of a sudden, it becomes a heinous injury, and it's this wraparound bruising, and 
he asks her if she knows what that is, and she asks him to explain it, and he says, well, I'm not going to get into that right now. <laughs> and so I just think, you know, when it's convenient for them, it's this heinous wound, but when it's not, you know, I don't know. I just, I'm, I have a hard time commenting on that interrogation. Yeah, it, it was rough, and, and I think that, the thing that that he was being so coy about that well, I'm not going to tell you what a wraparound bruise means. What it means typically is that someone was grabbed hard by the arm, um, and that's why I think that he was that it, it wasn't so much as happened in the struggle of the murder, but that it was uh, a precursor. You know, there was a, there was a fight and argument. He's trying to create a motive for her. When he kept calling it a wraparound bruise, that's typically what it is. Somebody forcefully grabs somebody by the arm and yanks them. You know, it'll cause those wraparound bruises. And and on that same note, again, just this morning, uh, I know after you had already got your questions together, Mike, on the fan page, somebody was talking about Sandy's discussion about Jim grabbing her. Uh, and I wanted to clear that up, too. So they're they're kind of tying these two things together, this bruise on her arm. And Sandy said when she was getting out of the tub that she had slipped and Jim grabbed her. When I was, if you listen to that, I believe she says it was her right arm that he grabbed, that she's indicating her right arm. Well, the big bruise on her bicep, the wraparound bruise, is on her left arm, on her left bicep. So there's no injury there to begin with. And, and she's saying that, and there was another question about that was, and you may already have this. Sorry if I'm jumping ahead of you, Mike, but you know, how did Jim grab her when she got out of the tub when she didn't get out of the tub until after he'd went to get the dogs? And the answer to that is if you, if you keep listening, uh, she says, no, it was when she got out to go to the bathroom, she slipped and Jim grabbed her. But she's she's making clear that, no, it wasn't an injury. He's asking, did he grab her at all? And she's saying, yes, I slipped. And he did reach up and, and grab my arm and, and help steady me. But as, for, if I, as the way I understood it was the other arm. There was no injury there. She's just trying to give as many details as possible to the detectives who are continually hounding her for details. I mean, am I right about that, Liz? Was she, she was talking about the other arm, right? Because I know you've seen the videos, too. Yeah, she was talking about the other arm, and uh, she said that this happened about an hour in. You know, she said they were in there for about two hours, so she thought it happened about halfway through uh, when she got out to use the restroom. Right. And on top of that, in the request for new trial, there was a veteran investigator who testified that it was it was similar to the bruising he had seen before when somebody had been grabbed from behind and pulled to their feet or pulled up. The, the bruise that was present on her left arm. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, so that's a good point. And, and again, that's to, to clarify that Sandy's telling of when she slipped going to the bathroom and Jim grabbed her, that does not have any connection to the bruise that's on her left arm. It was her right arm that he, that she was saying he grabbed, not the left arm where the bruise was. Leslie says, are there any thoughts on the perps being in the house before Jim and Sandra got home? Was the garage door to the house unlocked or has it been left unlocked as a habit in the past? So we, we've talked a little bit about the idea of the perps already being in the house when they got home. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities, as I've said in previous episodes. I think it's unlikely just because of the amount of time. If that had happened, the amount of time they waited before they made their move, so to speak. If that was the case, they could have quietly picked through the house, got what they wanted and got right back out. Uh, as far as the garage door, we do know the garage door was unlocked. That's how Herman walked into the house. Uh, and Liz, there's a little bit more about that, that door, the entry door between the garage and the house, right? Yeah, the, the lock had been broken. And I don't know when the last time was that had, it had been locked, but you know, even my mom had told the police that she couldn't remember the last time that they had locked that door. So once you get past the garage doors, you know, the, outer garage doors, then you could easily get into the house since that door is unlocked. Right. And to be clear, what you're saying is is that it was broken. The, the door was unable to be locked. Is that right? Yeah, that lock had been broken for a while. Kibby says, I'm not convinced anymore after this interrogation. If she wasn't offering information, she only ever answered direct questions. If you know you're the first suspect, you want to clear up all you know ASAP. Get out of there, be with family, and give the detectives the time to find the real killer. She hardly even cries, and it just happened. She doesn't remember some things. I have a chronic illness too, but if she wanted to help police find her husband's killer, she's doing it in a weird way. So this is another one of those comments, and no disrespect intended, but, but this is someone assuming 
that someone would act in the same way that they act. And we've talked about this time and time again. Everyone is is different in how they react to trauma, how they act to shock, how they react emotionally. So we can't put that on people as far as how they would act. And then also, again, if Sandy's telling the truth, and and I believe she is, she's she's recovering from a seizure from her time in the closet and has memory issues, sounds like there's potentially a concussion, and all that stuff factors in if that's all the case. So to say that, you know, she doesn't act a certain way or she's not crying, well, first of all, she is crying. There's times when she's crying. In the, and remember, she'd been in there for three hours at this point, plus the discussions that the police have had with her in the police car, plus what she's had inside the house. She's had bathroom issues during this time. I mean, this has been hours and hours and hours. And you go into, a lot of people go into a state of, of almost shock. So, so that's thing one. As far as explaining stuff, again, you're assuming by this that she has something else to explain, that there's more there. Think about what she said. And she was consistent with this all the way through. She's tried to give more details along the way, but she doesn't have them. They're not there. Or she's pretending she doesn't have them, if that's your point of view on this. But she was in the tub with her husband. They had a great night. They had fun. And he went to let the dogs in. And she goes in the closet. And bam, that's it. That's all she remembers. So there's not much else she can say. There isn't anything else she can say if if she's telling the truth, which is what the, the question here is kind of posing. Like, if she wants to help, why wouldn't she help in this way? Well, she's she's doing the best that she can if she's innocent and she is trying to help. This is a well-educated, intelligent woman who just spent three hours in a police station and, and the last hour of some of the, the most horrendous interrogation tactics I've ever heard for, especially for a suspect in this position, and never asked for a lawyer, never got up and left. She continued to try to answer their questions to get them closer. She is trying to help, first of all. And then as far as her not getting all the information out there, go back and listen to the interrogation. This is a shit job. Assume for a minute Sandy Melgar is guilty. It's still a piss-poor shit interrogation. I've never heard anything like this before. I've heard some some other bad ones in other ways, but they never gave her an opportunity to tell the story. Go ahead, Take a stopwatch and count how many seconds you can get between the detectives talking, meaning how much time did they allow Sandy to explain. And we've been educated on this, us as the host and, and you all as the audience, on proper interrogation techniques from some professionals like Jim Clementi and Tim Clementi. We've had these people on that have explained how it works. And from my own experiences, we've talked about it. The key is to let them talk. If you're going to have a confession, it should be a flowing narrative. You ask open-ended questions and you sit there and you let them talk. They ask it. They're constantly interrupting her, interjecting, asking her on and on and on and on and on. So you never get a good perspective about what she actually knows about the crime scene. All that being said, what I'm listening for in those boxes that we're checking that I talked about earlier is what is lining up with the actual crime scene? Because we know there's some little subtle details in that crime scene that maybe don't make sense to us. Certainly don't make sense for somebody to stage it, like the strawberries, for example. Remember, the Dole strawberry container is on the bathroom counter, but the strawberries are in a bowl at the tub. There's one strawberry in the whipped cream, and there's a little bit of whipped cream on the strawberries that are in there. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Doesn't look like anybody had eaten hardly any of the strawberries, if any. Well, then, as he's prompting and prodding her for more information, for more information, for more information, she talks about the strawberries, that he brought the strawberries. Did you eat the strawberries? Well, no. Well, no, because when he got in the tub, he set them on the counter and we couldn't reach them. Okay. And then later when he got out of the tub, when he was going to let the dogs in, if I remember correctly, is when he did it, he then moved them and set them over onto the bathtub. Remember, she said they had the whipped cream by the bathtub, but not the strawberries. So he sets the strawberries over and she says, I don't think, I think I ate one and then I got out. Those things track perfectly from what we see in the crime scene. And those are, again, just incredibly strange things to stage. It's too complex and, and she doesn't throw it out there. I'm listening to see, is she trying to push a narrative to fit the staging of the scene? And she's not. They're trying to draw and draw and draw and draw these things out. And so that was a huge indicator to me, not a red flag of guilt, as the commenter here uh, was maybe suggesting by some things, but but the other way around, it's 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 a checkbox that when he's trying to draw more details and he's asking about the strawberries and he's triggering her to try to remember what happened with the strawberries, she explains how they got there and it fits perfectly with what we see on the scene. So in, in my opinion, she did her her absolute best is what I was hearing 
to try to explain, try to give as much information as possible. One, she didn't have a lot of information because she doesn't remember. And two, they never gave her an opportunity to elaborate on a narrative. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Melissa says, during the interrogation, why do they care so much whether or not Jim wore a condom? Well, a lot of people asked that question, and a lot of people had a lot of different theories as to why that was the case. The way I read it, and trying to put myself in the mind of the detectives, because there was a lot of times I'm trying to figure out what they're getting at or what they're trying to uh, draw out of Sandy. To me, it was either a veiled threat or possibly a, an actual plan for them uh, that they could do a vaginal swab and test for for semen to try to corroborate her story. You know, because they're asking what you do. You know, in that context, they're asking her about intimate details about what happened that night. Did they have sex? And then they're like, did they wear a condom? And she's and he's he's making very clear, did you wear a condom or not? Because she and she said no. And so my thought was, okay, they're going to maybe do a, a vaginal swab. Now, I don't know if in a living person, I know how long that, that can show up in a, in a dead person, but in a living person, I don't know how long you could still test positive for that, like through a rape kit. Uh, I don't think, Liz, did they ever do, they never did a rape kit on your mother, did they? No, no, they definitely didn't. Okay, that's, that's what I thought. But to me, that's what they were getting at, that they could do a rape kit and corroborate it. So it was either a bluff and they never did it or they didn't feel the need to do it afterwards or I'm completely wrong and they were asking about a condom because they just were very interested in the Melgar sex life. Michelle says, when you say you want a lawyer, aren't they supposed to stop questioning? And then on that same topic, SDBKC off Twitter wants Bob to ask Lizzie why her mom talked for so long without a lawyer and made her physically sick to listen to it. So to the first point, you know, obviously we talked, we even had Allison Clayton come on and talk a little bit about uh, invoking your right to an attorney. And in the first half of the interview, I think we all came to the conclusion that she did not clearly and unequivocally invoke her right to an attorney. So they were, they were not required to stop talking to her. She said, I think I need an attorney. I think I might need an attorney. Now that's not good enough. However, in the last five minutes of this interview, she in no uncertain terms, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the exact quote in front of me. Uh, but I remember getting pissed and <laughs> making Mike come over and listen to it again because I was furious at the time because she said, okay, that's it. I'm done. I want a lawyer. I'm done talking to you because all you're doing is torturing me. That is an unequivocal, clear request for an attorney, and the interview should have stopped immediately. Now, it does stop shortly thereafter, but they continued afterwards. They, they, I know they specifically said, did you kill your husband? After that happened, and they should not have been able to do that. Had she responded, yes, I did. It's very likely I'm not a lawyer, but in my opinion, that would have been thrown out. It wouldn't have been able to be used because she had already said, I'm done. I want a lawyer. I'm not talking to you anymore. Uh, very clearly, she'd said that. So it should have stopped there. Nothing came of it anyway, but it was definitely, in my opinion, very improper to continue asking any more questions at that point. Uh, and then they wanted me to ask Liz why she talked to him so long. Did you ever talk to your mom, Liz, about that? Why why she continued to talk to him for all those hours? Yeah, well, she just she was of the belief that the police just wanted to get down to the bottom of it, that they were on her side, which quickly became apparent that they weren't. You know, she just thought that she had nothing to hide, so she would talk to them. And because she was innocent, there wouldn't be any problem with her you know, telling them what she knew without a lawyer present. I think a lot of people think that way. And, you know, it's obvious now what a bad idea that was. So I hope everyone remembers that the first thing you say is, I need a lawyer. Lawyer. I sadly tell my, my wife and children that if you ever are arrested or <laughs> if you ever are brought in for questioning for anything, you say one word, lawyer, and that's it. And somebody just posted on Twitter. Gosh, I wish I had screenshots so I knew the name of the person, but uh, they were quoting 
a uh, a famous lawyer who had said, "If you what what they say, if you were guilty, you need a lawyer. If you were innocent, you damn sure need a lawyer." Uh, which which is very true. That was the Lady Sybil. The Lady Sybil. So you saw that. Stacey Yates, the Lady Sybil. She's the one that quoted Steve Romine. Very if you're good. guilty, you get a lawyer. If you're innocent, damn sure you get a lawyer. Are you are you on Twitter right now? While we're trying to do a podcast, Liz. Maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, very good, and it, it's a very true statement because what we see is. And I see it both people that, that, that go through this process and, and things like this happen. You know, as Allison said, she's never worked a wrongful conviction where it started with somebody asking for a lawyer. And unfortunately, you want to cooperate, but it's, it's just never a good idea because there's always the potential for an innocent person to have their words twisted up on them. But what typically happens is the innocent person legitimately just wants to help and they're not worried about anything. And the guilty person will often go through the process without a lawyer too because they think that if they ask for a lawyer it's going to make them look guilty and in fact oftentimes we've heard many times interrogations that we've reviewed the police officers tell them that it's like oh well i guess you could get a lawyer but if you do you know well, then we start to wonder why do you want a lawyer and they and they back off on it i understand why the police do it um i think tim clementi put it pretty well when he was talking about it. He said, you know no, none of us want you know if you're if you're in there Doing your job properly as a police officer, you're in the interrogation room trying to get to the truth, and that's it. And once a lawyer's involved, that process stops, and that's no good for anybody. And that's true. You know, so I understand it. I'm not. I'm not knocking law enforcement for wanting to interview people without them getting a lawyer, because a lawyer is just going to tell you, "Don't say a freaking word." Period. That's it. But then at the same time, I've just seen so many wrongful convictions, and they're typically by overzealous officers. And these. I'm going to go in and talk now a little bit uh, real briefly as far as the interrogation tactics. Uh, when I said that even if she's guilty, this was atrocious. As I've said, we've learned proper interrogation tactics. Say Sandy Melgar is guilty. So this process should have been interview first. If you get evidence uh, indicating guilt or, or leverage, then you shift into interrogation. But it should start with rapport building. You need to make the person trust you. Uh, and again, remember, we're talking in a hypothetical that Sandy's guilty. They messed this up from the very beginning. They came at her guns blazing with zero evidence from the moment she got into the room in the first interview. They never built any rapport with her and they never let her narrate. They never gave her that time to tell a story because a lot of what you're doing in the interview phase, number one, you're trying to read a baseline from these people when they're comfortable. Uh, so you can see any physical indicators or verbal indicators of, of deception later trying to really loosen them up and get them talking. And you're also trying to get them on the record. Again, if you're talking to a guilty person, get them to tell you a story. So then when you give physical evidence, one, it can either corroborate their story or it can trip them up. And then you can see if they change their story. But they never did that. They they came guns blazing immediately on Sandy, never built any rapport, never let her give a proper narration of what happened that day. And then, then they shifted into even, you know, it, it never went from interview to interrogation. It was always interrogation. But then, you know, at, at the end, the last seven minutes or so, I'm sure you all heard the help me, Sandy, help me, Sandy, help me, Sandy. That, I'm, fuck you, Carazal. That was horrible. He didn't even consider, and if he did, it's even worse, that you have no evidence that this woman killed her husband. None. Zero. Whether she did or didn't do it, you have no evidence. At this point, the crime scene investigation isn't even done yet. You have no clue. All you have is a theory in your head. But what you do know is this woman's husband was just brutally murdered. And to treat her that way, to, to I think Sandy put it best, torture her in that way is completely unprofessional. And it is a useless tactic. Useless tactic. They're not getting to a place where She's ready to confess. Even the read technique would teach you start giving them options. Maybe this happened. Maybe this. Happened. We understand that that's the tactics you use if you're dealing with a guilty person to try to give them an out and guide them into telling the truth with your confession. But that that was just horrible. It was it was a terrible technique. It was a terrible interrogation from beginning to end. Uh, whether she's innocent or guilty, it is the worst I've heard, and I've heard a lot of bad ones. That is the worst tactics I've heard from beginning to end. And they ought to be ashamed of themselves 
and I hope they are. I suspect they're probably not. But thankfully, the one leading all this no longer works for the, the Harris County Sheriff's Department after being caught backdating a warrant. Jennifer says, is it possible that Sandy was restrained first and simultaneously, and that's why she couldn't hear anything with Jim's attack? Well, there's a lot of reasons why she wouldn't have heard what happened in Jim's attack. First of all, what we talked about earlier, the memory issues that come with seizures and lupus fog, she could have heard it. It's completely plausible and scientifically accurate as far as what could happen had she had a seizure. Say she had a seizure 10 minutes into this. Maybe she had a seizure after she was already bound and and all of this happened and she heard it all. But because of what happens in the brain during a seizure with a concussion, with lupus, she just doesn't remember hearing it. And that's a, a big part that I think certainly the officers, of course, they never even assumed for a minute that she possibly was innocent. But another thing that that a lot of uh, discussion revolving around this is kind of missing is we're assuming that she didn't see or hear anything. But we don't know that because if she's telling the truth, then the memory issues she have would, would wipe that out even if she had. As far as could it, is that scenario possible? Yeah, that's a very good hypothesis, I think. I personally think that as I'm looking at this crime scene, what I'm seeing is multiple intruders in the house attacking both Jim and Sandy at the same time. There's lots of indicators that we talked about uh, last week with Jim's body as far as the the bindings around his ankles and how can that happen. Number one, if he's fighting. Number two, with only one person. I feel like there had to be two people in that process. And then what's, what's happening with Sandy in the other room? Are they going to do that with another person? I don't think so. I think somebody would be going to control Sandy as well. So in in my opinion, that's a very, very good hypothesis with the caveat that you know, we don't have any proof of that yet. It's just a hypothesis. but. It certainly, in my opinion, fits pretty well with what we've seen so far in the crime scene. Jill says, the detective kept insisting that Jim was yelling for help, that he was saying, quote, help me, Sandy. He insisted that she would have heard him yelling. It seems that he thinks she is guilty because she didn't hear anything. How does the detective know Jim yelled anything at all? He doesn't. I mean, there's there's no way anyone could know. It's just a tactic. I don't know if he watches too much TV cop shows on tv or whatever and he was trying to bad cop bad copper but it was just a tactic there's no way anyone could know what jim was saying or if he was saying anything and add to that on the shitty tactic conversation the you know making sure that she knows how much her husband suffered when he was dying again if you're wrong carazal and she's innocent that's a class act move buddy class act Okay, Bob, we got one listener question left. But before we get to that, last night you texted me barricade dogs. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, I told you to remind me about that because I was I was reviewing some stuff and I didn't want to forget and I didn't know <laughs> this is a perfect way to get it in because I didn't know how to get it into the conversation. But along the lines of the boxes that I'm checking, which is some of what I was doing again last night, going through it over and over and over again, a big question that we had in the last few weeks was why are the dogs loose in the house? If the dogs were barricaded Back in the breakfast nook area, how were they loose in the house? And we're trying to piece that into, did he get? Did he go over there and get them out? Why are the barricades still up? Did Jim climb over them? How did the dogs get out? And all plays into, did somebody come in the back door? So on and so forth. What I caught, and I didn't even catch it the first time I listened. I heard it, but didn't, it didn't make, seem to matter to me. Uh, but as I listened over and over again, one of the things that Sandy said briefly, if you were listening closely, was, they were discussing the dogs and what to do about the dogs because they're always escaping out of the barricade. Did you catch that, Liz? Yeah, I heard that. So did you know, like, was that a conversation you ever had with your parents as far as the you know issues? I know you talked to your mom a lot as far as the dogs getting out of the barricaded area. Yeah, you know, she had talked about them escaping and making messes everywhere and they were trying to contain them. And she just really wanted me to come get my dogs because they were, you know over it that was one of the the only probably light-hearted parts of that conversation that i think your mom's normal personality kind of shined through a little bit is when they asked the question who decided for the dogs to have puppies and she said the dogs <laughs> did <laughs> so anyway that that was uh, something that wasn't a, a problem she had talked about with you, too, that you wanted to get your damn dogs out of there so they'll stop escaping the barricades and messing up the house. Basically, yeah. I'd be sick of cleaning up after them, too. 
Right. Did they ever, did your mom ever talk about the paper scraps that were all over the place? So I've kind of speculated about what, how I thought they got there or how long they had been there. Did that conversation ever come up? Does she know were those paper scraps there the day before? I know she had said in the interrogation that, she, that they had already made a mess and she had been trying to clean it up that day uh, prior to them going out. But, I, but she didn't say anything specifically about the paper shreds. Um, yeah. So, you know, they had this uh, medical billing and coding business, so they had to shred papers quite frequently. Um, but she wasn't sure why they had been tracked all over the house because they're usually contained in the trash can. Yeah, we never found an explanation for why they were scattered all over the house. Okay, so she doesn't really know either. No. All right, and our last question comes from Candy. Was the transcript of Sandy's interview only given to the jury, or were the tapes also provided? It seems so different just reading it, especially with the one part that says, Sandra drank too much. What do you think? First of all, I guess, let me ask this real quick. Liz, do you know if the audio of the interrogation was played for the jury, or were they just given the transcripts? I believe that parts of it were played. But it was just like snippets. It wasn't the entire the entire interrogation. Okay, and that leads into what she was talking about here, which is so. There's been a lot of conversation about Maria Melgar's statements. When Maria interviewed with me, she explained, and so did Herman, that Herman found Sandy. Herman tried to untie her. He got the scissors and he started cutting. He made a couple of cuts, and he could, the binding still didn't come off, and then Maria finished. And Maria's police statement, which we right now still only have the transcript for and not the actual audio. And again, this interview was done in Spanish, and then it was in the transcript. There's the Spanish and then the English translation. She says that it was Herman who cut her out, and she only knows what the ankle bindings look like. Uh, and the point that I've made several times having this conversation with a couple of people is that I don't trust the transcripts because I know for a fact they've made errors in the transcripts. And what I'm referring to is, so now that we, we posted this on the website this week, if you haven't seen it yet, the transcripts for Sandy's full interrogation, the first part and the second part, are up on the website. And if you take and read the transcript while you're listening, you'll see there are lots of inaccuracies, like inaccuracies where she says yes, and the transcript says she says no, which, you know, maybe in contents didn't make a big difference, but it's a problem. It's a big problem. And I'm not saying that was intentional or anything like that. But what we do know is there are errors. There's a clear potential for error in the transcripts because we know for a fact that the transcript doesn't match up with the audio. Some of them, as I've, I, I've said in a couple of Facebook comments, that sometimes I think maybe some of them were intentional without necessarily making that accusation. But there's one in particular. Uh, I know, Liz, that you jumped in and pointed out when we were um, we were both engaged in the same conversation on the fan page and airing the transcript that she mentions here regarding Sandy saying she drank too much. If you could real quick explain the difference between what your mom actually said and what the transcript say she said. Right. So the cops are asking her about whether or not she'd gotten out of the tub right away when my dad went to go check on the dog. And they have her quoted as saying, Maybe about five minutes because I've been sick drinking. I mean, I drank a little more than I could handle. Right. That's what the transcript which says. Is, right. That's what the transcript says, which is incorrect because what she's actually saying is because I, and then she stops for a little bit, was, and then she pauses, and then she stutters, and then she says, drinking. I mean, I drank a little more and then I got out. Right. And I saw that I had the same exact place in my notes. So, yeah, so the transcript says, and you talk about context, when you read that transcript, it says, I was sick from drinking, I drank more than I could handle. And when you listen to what's actually being said, she says nothing even close to that. She says that she drank, she had she had one more drink, or she drank, was it, she, I drank a little more, is that what it said? Yeah, I drank a little more and then I got out. Right, she says, I drank a little more and then I got out, but in the transcripts it says, I I was sick drinking, and I drank more than I could handle. I had somebody say that they could hear it both ways. Maybe I don't. I don't know. I listened to it while reading. The way we find these discrepancies is we're reading the transcripts as we're going. So your brain, the the logical thing your brain does is try to connect what you're reading with what they say. Meaning, if it's gonna, if you're going to make an error, it's going to go the other way. Uh, you would hear what you're reading, 
that's a natural thing. And in this one, it just immediately, while I was reading it, was like, what? That's nothing like what she said. I've listened to it repeatedly. There's a minute marker on the episode, isn't there, Liz? Uh, if somebody wants to go back and listen to that particular part. Yeah, the timestamp is at 44 minutes and 41 seconds. So that's in this week's episode, which was season six, episode nine. If it, What was that again? 44 what? 44 minutes, 41 seconds. Yep. So if you go to 44, 41, you can listen and see what you hear. Again, the transcript says that Sandy is saying that uh, she was sick drinking and drank more than she could handle. What I hear when I'm listening uh, and what, I, what she actually says is that I drank a little more and then I got out, uh, which are very different. But you can listen for yourself. That's at that timestamp. And you said that was it, Mike. That's all you got. That's a wrap, Bob. All right. Thanks, Liz, so much for joining us and getting up super early before the, the kids were up and around in California. Hopefully you get a little bit of rest. And for all of you listeners, we'll see you guys next week. See you guys. Bye, everybody. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.